Well, Father in heaven, what a joy this morning to be here with my family, people that I love so much. What a joy it is to be able to remind them and to remind my own heart of the realities of the resurrection. And Holy Spirit, you are welcome. You're welcome here to exalt Christ, to minister to our hearts, to sanctify us, to mature us, to grow us, to make us look more like your son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, as we examine the scriptures this morning and as we break bread together afterwards, Lord, that you would be manifest here in the midst of us, God. Make much of yourself, as always, in Jesus' name, amen. The key to perseverance is perspective. The key to perseverance is perspective. I want you to remember that. Perspective, what is it? Perspective is, is where things get put in the right places, where things that seemed big maybe actually are seen later to be not that big. You guys ever been um, on a hike or, or something where you're, you're sort of lost, <laughs> a little confused? Did I take the right trail? Maybe did I take the wrong trail? Am I where I'm supposed to be? And you're kind of in the woods and it's hard to see. And, and you sort of start to feel your confidence disappearing. I don't really know where I'm going. Maybe I'm not going the right way. What causes that lack of confidence to dissipate? Perspective. You get up on a mountain. You see where you're going. Okay, you, you see the layout. You see where the horizon is. You see where the sun is setting or where the sun is rising. And all of a sudden, everything becomes clear. When we have confidence or when we have clarity, we get confidence in order to have perseverance, we need to have perspective. If you want to elevate your endurance, you need to elevate your perspective. Why am I saying that? Well, why do Christians every year stop to celebrate the resurrection? One word, perspective. We need to put everything back in perspective. We need to, we need to stop and we need to go, wait a minute. There's a reality here to behold and that reality that we need to behold is going to cause everything else to become clear. Any of you guys uh, have some of the newer phones these days? They have this ability to, uh, to, to make really what looks like professional photography, right? And, and, and the key is the autofocus will kick in if you get close enough to your subject. If your subject fills your screen, then all the background starts to look like what? Blurry. And that's kind of what makes a good picture, right? You want the subject to be clear and the background to be blurry. This morning's text is going to do exactly that for us. It's going to make the subject of Easter, Christ and the resurrection, it's going to make it very clear. And it's going to fill our screen. And in doing so, the things that really are less important are going to begin to become blurry in the background. Photographers call that bokeh. That's what we're hoping for this morning. That Jesus would fill our screen this morning. To live like overcomers, we need to fill our screen with the one that overcame, right? If we're going to live like overcomers, and that's actually the, the call to the book of Revelation. If you study it, it's a call to live like overcomers. But it's a call to live like overcomers by seeing that Jesus has overcome. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Why is the resurrection so encouraging? Why is it the central feature of Christianity? Why do we get back together every year to celebrate. That's what I want to kind of wrestle out and tease through today. Now, today's text, Revelation chapter 1, uh, is not the typical Easter passage, right? 
It's not what you were expecting. You know, you're expecting probably the narratives that we often look at where, uh, where the tomb is discovered to be empty uh, or one of those sort of selected texts from, uh, from the narratives of Scripture. But here's my conviction this morning. My conviction is that this morning, we at Philippi Church, we need a bigger vision of the resurrected Christ than simply him appearing for 40 days to the disciples and to many others. Not that that's not important. But that's actually not where Jesus stayed. Did you notice that? Something happened after the resurrection. It's called the ascension. He left this earth temporarily and went to the right hand of the Father. And this is what we need to see this morning. We need to see Jesus high and lifted up, exalted. And so this morning, we're not going to look at the narrative of the empty tomb. Rather, we're going to look at John's vision some 60 years later of the risen and glorified Jesus in heaven. It's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool passage. Excited to dig into it with you guys. Why am I choosing this passage today? I'm choosing it because Jesus seemed to think uh, in the day of John, towards, you know, towards, towards the end of the first century, he seemed to think that the church needed a bigger vision of who he was. They needed resurrection reality to be released to them. They needed to see Jesus in a particular way. And we'll talk kind of more about that in a minute. And we need that too. So, in order to preserve, or in order to persevere, we need to behold the full, uncompressed vision of the resurrected Christ. And this is, this is what our passage, I think, is going to do for us this morning. Now, let me give you a little bit of background to the book of Revelation. If you haven't studied it, I just need to set the table just a little bit for you. Um, <clears throat> scholars argue. That's what they do. They argue about when it was written. And, uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think, most likely, it was written about 60 years after the life, death, burial of Jesus. So John, the apostle, who is the author of the Revelation, is an old man. He's an old man. And the setting, as we'll see, is a setting of great tribulation and struggle and frustration. There's a lot of things that are up against the church at this point. And when John wrote this, the church, of course, was no longer just a small group of 12 disciples or, or a handful of believers in Galilee and Judea. The church had exploded all across the ancient world, all to the edges and the ends of the Roman Empire. The church, just read the book of Acts, like wildfire, it exploded. But with that came challenges, severe challenges to the church. One of those challenges was the state-sponsored persecution of the church by the Roman Empire, Domitian, to be specific, who was over uh, Rome at that particular time. So we have state-sponsored persecution by Rome. We have this rejection and incompatibility with Judaism. Judaism had no wanted nothing to do with Christianity because the two were incompatible, and there was hostility there. There was persecution there. There, uh, with explosive growth in Christianity, there's also become, or there's also been immaturity and dysfunctionality, and even as we see in the Book of Revelation, even some apathy. So these churches have been planted, they've been started, but there's Christians in those churches that are struggling. They're they're still immature. They're they're still living in many ways like they used to live. False teaching is infiltrating the church like it always is. Gnosticism. This idea of the sort of secret knowledge that was available was knocking on the door of the church constantly. Racism and racial tensions between Jew and Gentile. Could Gentiles really truly belong to this community of faith? Okay, the, the Judaizers were constantly coming to the church trying to get Gentiles to adopt the old covenant rituals of, uh, of faith. 
And there's this eschatological disappointment. What do I mean by that? Eschatological meaning there was a group of people that thought they were going to see the return of Christ. In fact, I think all the Christians that lived during the life and death of Jesus thought that Jesus would return in their lifetime. So their eschatology was built around this idea that they were going to see it happen. And now it's been 60 years and oppression has ramped up and persecution is prevalent and insecurity is there. And John is the last living apostle and he's exiled on a penal colony called Patmos, off the coast of Asia Minor. So the question I think that would be being wrestled with by the church is, are we going to make it through this? Now, where is Jesus? Is he coming for us? Did he just abandon us? Did he just leave us? And is this movement of the gospel and Christianity, is it going to survive all of this pressure? That's the question that Christians would be asking. And I I frankly don't know that they would have the confidence or the perspective to be able to answer that question with any kind of clarity. Is Jesus unaware of this? The answer is no. The church in this moment, and I think in this moment too, was very much in need of fresh vision and clear perspective. And so it's no mistake that it's in this moment that Jesus chooses to reveal himself, the resurrected and ascended Jesus to the church of this time and to the church of today. And so this is the scene that we're going to dive into this morning. The revelation is a letter from Christ to his church. And it has future material in it, but the material we're going to look at This morning is not future, it's present. What I mean is the picture we're going to see of Jesus is not what he will be like. Listen to me, it's what he is like right now. And this is why we will be encouraged by this. And this is why there's great perspective in this. So let's dive in. We're going to start Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. The Apostle John opens up like this. He says, I, John... Note it, your brother and partner and the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John opens up here to these churches, these seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, by first of all identifying with them participating with their situation, not lording over their situation. You notice how he addresses himself? He doesn't say, I, John, the Pope of the church. I, John, the last living apostle. I, John, the one who will see you through these hard times. No, what does he say? He says, I, John, a brother and a partner in your tribulation and in the kingdom and in patient endurance. John chooses rather to place himself among the sheep Though he was a shepherd, he wasn't the shepherd. It's important to point this out because if we were supposed to have a senior leader of Christianity, certainly John would have taken that, but he didn't. Because we have a senior leader, don't we? It's the arch the, the poemen, the chief shepherd. Jesus, the chief shepherd. And John 
knows this. So John simply identifies himself as among them, and he identifies himself in three different categories. And these form three different things that we should see that we all will share in as Christians. The first one, note it, he says, I am a brother and a partner in tribulation. Okay? So he sees himself as in participation with their tribulation. The word tribulation just means trouble. It's trouble. It's hardship. It's pressure. And certainly John is partnering in their pressure because what? He's exiled on a penal colony. He has been labeled an enemy of the state. He's an enemy of the state for the same reason that most of the Christians in this day were enemy of the states because they refused to say Kaiser Kyrios, which means what? Caesar is Lord. They couldn't say it because for people of the kingdom, we believe that Caesar is not Lord. We believe that what? Christos Kyrios, Jesus is Lord. So John and all the believers would refuse to declare the, the lordship and the sovereignty in that way of Caesar. And so Christianity began to become labeled as an enemy of the state. So John is participating in their trouble in so much that he's been exiled on Patmos. Now, trouble is not a possibility for Christians. It's a promise. Did you know that? So if you're here today and you're, you're, you're not a Christian and you're like... I'm considering Christianity. Know this. Okay? I'm going to give you the worst sales pitch ever. Christianity does not, it, it, it might not have, it might, it is, it's not that it might have trouble, it will have trouble. Jesus said it, right? He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, why do we have so much trouble? Well, the second thing John says he participates with them in is the kingdom. John says that I'm part of the kingdom with you. Now, you know the gospel, if you've heard the word gospel, Gospel just means good news. And it was a, a, a Greek Roman word that was used to declare usually some kind of a victory or a new um, ascension of a new Caesar or, or some kind of a, a news of a, of a victory. And in this case, kingdom is the centerpiece of the gospel. The message of Christianity is that there is a new kingdom because the king is on the throne and that new kingdom administration is breaking into this old one. So John says, I partner with you in this kingdom reality. And this is why we have so much trouble in the world, largely. Because as Peter would later say in his Gospels, we are exiles, elect exiles, and dispersion. We are strangers and we are pilgrims. The way that we live, the way that we think, the one that we serve is incompatible with the age that we live in, the world that we live in. We are part of another kingdom. And that kingdom is like oil and water with the kingdom of this world. The two cannot be compatible. So John, in essence, says, we don't fit in, we fit out. But we all fit out together, right? That's kind of what he's saying. I'm quoting a kid's movie there for some of you guys. Uh, home, the little purple alien. He's like, I don't fit in, I fit out. Okay, we, we fit out, but we all fit out together. Okay, I've scratched that one out for the second service. That one didn't land well. <laughs> guys are the guinea pigs. It's great. The third thing John says he partners with them in is, note it, patient endurance. Patient endurance. That is actually one Greek word translated into two English words. Patient endurance is actually one Greek word, and it's hypomene. Hypomene. It basically means, to put it as simply as I, I possibly can, it basically means hard waiting. Waiting patiently through trouble, through struggle. It's pressure, or it's, it's uh, stead, being steadfast under pressure patiently. 
That's kind of the idea there. He says, I'm, I'm partnering you, with you. I'm, I'm a brother with you, not only in hardship and not only in the kingdom, but in our waiting. And that's a lot of what Christianity is. You know, it's a lot of waiting. It's waiting patiently. And it's enduring this life, knowing that there's something coming that we're waiting for. So, John continues. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit. Now, when John says, I was in the Spirit... He doesn't mean it like the way Paul uses it, which means the Spirit has had control of my behavior. Rather, here John means literally I was in a spiritual dimension, a metaphysical reality. John was carried up in some way, and I don't think this was just a vision. I think this was reality. John was carried up in the Spirit, by the Spirit, into a place that's outside of his dimension. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, which is when? Anybody? Anybody? Saturday, Sunday, Sunday. This, this is the early church, okay? The Lord's day for the early church was Sunday. Why? Because of the resurrection. That's a good answer. Good job. Because of the resurrection. That's the day the Lord rose. So that's the day the church celebrates, right? That's why we gather on Sundays. So John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me, he says, a loud voice like a trumpet. And I don't think like a little annoying bugle. Okay? Think like a big, giant shofar, like a big, low, rumbly horn that is, that is sounded to, to signal something is about to happen. So John hears this loud voice behind him, like a trumpet. In verse 11, he turns around, or saying, this is what the trumpet says, says, write what you see in a book. By book, it means a scroll or a letter, Okay and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis, to the Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So Jesus, we know it's Jesus, from behind speaks to John and he says, hey, I want you to write down what you're about to see. And I want you to notice the emphasis on sight. It's what he sees that the power is in. And he says, I want you to write it down and I want you to send it to these seven churches. Now why these seven churches? These seven churches were a circuit of churches that all were sort of formed a circle within Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. Okay? And the idea was that this letter from Jesus to the church would be circulated on this kind of Roman road, and that all of these churches would read them aloud. And if you guys have studied the book of Revelation chapter 2, there's seven letters to these seven churches. But this picture we're about to see of the risen Christ, it serves as kind of the foundation of these seven letters. In fact, each letter references something about this picture that we're going to see of the risen Christ. So, verse 12. Now, John does what you would expect him to do. He turns around. He turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So John turns around to see whose voice this is and what does he see? First of all, the setting. He sees seven golden lampstands. Not one golden lampstand with seven branches, no. Seven golden lampstands. What is that? Well, we'll find out in a moment that they represent the churches, these seven churches that he's writing to. But also, the seven golden lampstands are temple furniture. John would have known this. And there is someone who is in the midst of this temple furniture, and guess how he's dressed? He's dressed like a priest. And not just a run-of-the-mill priest, but the high priest with a golden sash 
and a long robe. This priest is doing priestly duties in a priestly place, some kind of a heavenly temple. This is what John is meant to see here. This is what we are meant to see here. We are meant to see not only a priest, though, we are meant to see a king. This is not just a priest. This is a priest king. How do I know that? Well, John says, I saw one here in verse 13, like the son of man. Okay, th those aren't chosen words because this person looked like a human, although that is true. John chooses the words like the son of man to signal a particular passage of scripture in the Old Testament that you should be very familiar with, and it's Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a similar vision where he sees the ancient of days, God the Father, bestowing power and dominion on this other figure. And Daniel doesn't really know who he is, so he just calls him the Son of Man. And that consequentially, that was Jesus' favorite name for himself because he was kind of secretly alluding to the fact that he was this figure in Daniel chapter 7. Let me read for you Daniel 7, verse 13. Da uh, Daniel says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that is the father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Hmm, I wonder who the son of man is. And that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So it's no mistake that John, in his revelation here, he says, I see one who is like a high priest and he is like the son of man. Meaning he is a priest king. He has all power. He has all authority. The point we are to see here is the combination. The combination of the two. He is both priest and king. Now John's going to describe for us the imagery of who this uh, this person, this figure who we know to be Jesus is. And I want you to slowly just kind of work through this and try to understand some of the symbolism here. Verse 14, we're back in uh, Revelation 1. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Why, were the, why, why is the hair of Jesus white? Well, white hair, some of you will be glad to know, was a sign of wisdom. And honor, as it ought to be, right? As it ought to be. So this is not to say that Jesus is now old. He's not. He probably still looks like a 33-year-old man. This is to say that Jesus is in his glorified state. And don't forget, Jesus is God. He is God. He has all wisdom. He has all knowledge. So it's important that we see this. And he goes on. He says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. You'll notice John, when he's describing these things, he says they were like this. So John is choosing, uh, to the best of his abilities, human dimension uh, words and human dimension lexicon to try to describe metaphysical realities, things that are beyond his dimension. And so not only does Jesus have this white hair, he has these burning eyes. What does that mean? Well, the blaze of his gaze is pure. It's discerning. It's omniscient. He sees all, he knows all, he discerns all truth and delineates all deception. The gaze of Christ is pure and omniscient. That's what we're meant to see. 
Paul, or now John's eyes go from the head of Christ down to the feet of Christ. And he describes in verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. What is that all about? <laughs> what, did he spend too much time in the tanning bed? What's going on? Why, why are his feet orange? Okay, well, first of all, they're not orange. Get that out of your head, okay? They're not orange. They're bronze, And bronze is not so much about the color as much as it is about the ferocity and the holiness. This is burnished bronze as though it's just come out of a furnace. And it's not just his feet, it's his whole body. It's just that he's wearing a robe. So all that's exposed there is face and his feet. So John describes both his face and his feet as being like this burnished bronze. The point is, Jesus is glowing. He's glowing. He's like he's been straight out of the furnace. He's, He's pure He's like nuclear glory is just emanating from the body of Christ. And is it any mistake? I mean, think about the scene where Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up in the mountain. What did he begin to do up there? It's called the transfiguration. He began to glow. Glory began to burst forth. One of the most incredible features of the incarnation, Jesus becoming man, is not that Jesus could become man. It's that Jesus could hold back his glory for 33 years. And so for just a moment on the mountain there, Jesus burst forth out of that. And here now we're seeing that glory fully released as Jesus is seen ascended in heaven. And John is just simply describing that. He goes on, verse 15, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. What does that mean? John is using a picture to describe that this voice of Christ is so loud you can feel it in your chest. You know that feeling? You ever stood at the base of a massive waterfall or, or stood right next to a giant subwoofer and you feel the pounding of that on your chest? The voice of Christ is so loud and so majestic that you can feel it. It's like, it's like an immense amount of water. That's how John describes it. In verse 16, in his right hand, what is he holding? Seven stars. Well, what are the seven stars? We find out. In just a moment, we'll find out the seven stars represent the angelos, the, 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 the leaders, I believe, of the seven churches. Okay, it's another way of saying Jesus is holding in his hand the seven churches, the fate, the destiny, the leadership of the seven churches. Jesus is holding them in his hands, and from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. What does this mean? It means his word is powerful. It means his word has the power to both destroy and create. Remember, in Genesis 1, God created ex nihilo, from nothing. God's words are so powerful, he speaks life into existence. Jesus' words have the ability to create life. It's like a sword. Hebrews describes the word of God as a double-edged sword, right? So Jesus' words are powerful. They're powerful. They cut through things. Now, just stop for a minute. Let me just insert an assumption. John was not a stranger to this figure, was he? John spent 33 years with this man, didn't he? What's a time you can think of in John's life where he would have stopped and been amazed by the power of the words of Jesus? How about the moment when they were on a boat and there was an incredible storm in the Galilee, so much so that their lives felt threatened and they were all trying to figure out why Jesus was not concerned about it and why he was sleeping in the boat So they wake him up and said, do you not even care that I perish? And Jesus stands up. This is in his incarnation, right? In his 33 years of life, he stands up. He looks at this storm and he says, 
shut up. That's not what he said, actually. That's, that's, that's the translation. No, he said, be still. He said, be still. And instantly, nature obeys. How powerful are the words of Christ that creation itself obeys him. So I could just imagine John beholding the resurrected and ascended Jesus might even be thinking, wow, I thought his words were powerful then. They're so much more powerful than I possibly could have imagined. Jesus' word is powerful. It's so powerful. Then he says his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So just like his feet, his face is full of glory. This is the glorious, risen, resurrected, ascended Jesus at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning in all power. And God has chosen to bring John for a moment into this place of perspective and clarity so that he could see the glory of Christ. And what I want you to see here, and I think what we are meant to see here is not just the glory of Jesus, we're meant to see the humanity of Jesus. How do I know that? He still has feet. He still has hands. He still has a face. I think what we're meant to see here is that not only the godness of Jesus, but the humanness of Jesus. And this is where we're going to start to feel, it's going to feel a little more like a resurrection Easter message now, okay? Okay, Jesus, listen, Jesus took his humanity with him to heaven. The resurrection is not just about Jesus conquering sin and proving that he did it. It's about him salvaging, and not actually salvaging, rebirthing humanity forever, fusing himself to it, and taking it with him to heaven. So he is fully God, yet he still has this human figure that John is able to see, and as we'll see in a moment, be touched by. What's the point of this imagery? The point is that we have an eternal priest king who is both powerful and present in the midst of his church. He is sovereign. He is victorious. He is conquered. Because he is conquered, we are more than conquerors, right? Is anybody else stoked about this? Yeah, okay. There we go. Get some coffee. Come back and we'll keep going. Yeah. Nine o'clock, I guess. So, verse 17. Now, John's going to go from a feeling of terror to a familiar touch. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's a very consistent pattern of a reaction for people in the Bible when they behold the unbridled, uncompressed, raw glory of God. Anybody remember Isaiah chapter 6? The prophet Isaiah, again, similar to this, is carried to the throne room of God, beholds, I think, the pre-incarnate Christ, and he sees this glory, and he falls down on his face. John does the same thing. I don't even know that it would be a thought. I don't even know if he'd be like, I should probably fall down. I just think he would see it and go, Foomp. Why, was he, why would he do that? Why is he falling down you know, flat on his face? Well, it signals, it's a cultural thing, first of all, but it signals total surrender. Total surrender. Total submission. Total admission of inadequacy and total reverence for the one in whom whose courtroom he is in. Okay, so John does what is perfectly natural. He falls down on his face. Now, I want you to see what happens next. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. He laid his right hand on me. 
Now, this is interesting. If you've studied the Bible and you've studied the Old Testament and you've had any time interacting with the, the nuclear glory of God and the holy righteousness of God and how it typically interfaces or interacts with the sinfulness of human beings, you know that God can't just touch humans. He put Moses in the cleft of the rock. You remember the story in Samuel where Uzzah and his crew was taking the ark, God's box, represented his presence and his holiness. They're taking God's box back into Jerusalem and the cart begins to wobble and the ark begins to fall and Uzzah reaches out to stop the ark thinking he's gonna do God a favor and he's struck dead. So you guys are visiting this morning, you're like, whoa. Well, there's good news to that. Isaiah chapter six, again, Isaiah, he's in the presence of the glory of God. God appears, he falls on his face. Woe is me, for I am undone. And God doesn't touch him. Rather, God commissions an angel to take some tongs and take some, some coals from the atonement from the fire and come and, and purify him because Isaiah was unclean. He was unpure. But what happens here? This is the new covenant. Jesus has come. Jesus has died on the cross. This is the new covenant. Here's John. He's beholding the glory of God. And what does Jesus do? He touches him. And John doesn't die. Isn't that incredible? Why doesn't he die? Because John, those hands, listen to me, the hands that touched John had holes in them. They had holes in them. They had holes in them because Jesus paid the sin debt for John. Jesus went to the cross, as we discovered two nights ago. He absorbed the wrath of the Father. He paid the sin debt. He gave John his righteousness. He lived a perfect life and died the perfect death so John could be right and pure in the midst of the holiness and the glory of God forever, and Jesus can touch him. So not only is it cool that Jesus has hands, it's cool that his hands can touch a man because John is purified. Oh, that's really good news. It's really comforting. And so, so Jesus isn't trying to terrify John. He comes to touch him, not to harm him, but to comfort him. But he doesn't just lay his hand on him. He says something. What does he say? He'll, he, he laid his right hand on me saying, what does he say? He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am, yes, I'm emphasizing those two words. I am the first and the last. Okay, let's stop right there. There's two reasons. That's the first one. Two reasons that, that what Jesus says is comforting to John. The first is because of his deity. Jesus says, fear not, I am the first and the last. What does that mean? I am God. You cannot claim to be the I am, and you cannot claim to be the first and the last if you are not God the one true God. Jesus comforts John, not only with his touch, but he comforts him with his words that he is God. But that's not all that he comforts him with. What else does he say? What else does he say? Fear not, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, and here's the Easter. Here's the Easter verse. You ready? You guys are like, is this gonna get Easter? Okay. And the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Ooh, the good news of the risen Christ. The good news of the risen Christ in his glory to John is not only that he is powerful, not only that he is present, but it is that he died and has risen forever. And because he died and because he rose, he has all power over what? 
death. What does the key mean? The key means he has power. The key means he has authority. The, mean, the key means he can unlock it. Death has been defeated. Jesus has risen, and because he has risen, death has been defeated. And you might be saying, how and why? Why does the resurrection defeat death? How does the resurrection defeat death? What exactly is it about the resurrection? I'm super glad you asked that. Let me tell you. There's a few reasons. The first, of, the first, of, first reason that the resurrection proves that Jesus has the key over death is it proves that what Jesus did on the cross actually was accomplished. If Jesus had stayed in the grave, we might hope that there was some kind of a spiritual transaction that happened in the heavens, but how could we possibly know? Jesus rose to prove that what he had done on the cross was actually finished and that it was accomplished to remove our sin. Second reason is the resurrection means new life for a new humanity. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus, it seems like Jesus could have just stayed in heaven and offered a sacrifice in heaven for humans, which would have saved us, not for, from this world, but saved us positionally in heaven. So, so great, we're saved, we die, we leave the world behind, and we go be in heaven with God. Couldn't God have done that? Well, maybe, but this, the gospel is not about God just saving you and your spirit. God is saving your body. He's saving you physically. He's saving a physical world. And this is why, if you actually flip one page over to Revelation chapter 1, verse, I think it's verse 5. Let me just look. Nope, chapter 1. Nope, follow me. Verse 1, or verse uh, 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the, note it, firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? Does, it, does that mean that Jesus was created? No. Firstborn of the dead means that when Jesus resurrected, he wasn't just coming back to life. You've heard me say this before. The resurrection isn't resuscitation. It's regeneration. Jesus didn't just come back from the dead. Jesus was born again. In that he was the first real human to populate the new, real, eternal world Jesus said of himself, his life was like a seed. The seed would go into the ground, it would die, but then it would come back, bursting forth with life. The resurrection tells us that Jesus didn't just come to save us from a material world, he came to save the material world. He came to forever fuse himself with creation. And he's gonna come back and redeem and recreate creation. Jesus popped out of the grave like a seed, brings forth life. That's why Easter, I think, is so nicely positioned in springtime. When things are bursting forth with life, Jesus died and now his life is bursting forth. It's bursting forth out of his church, out of the kingdom of God. Redemption has come from the seed of Jesus' death. This is why the resurrection is such good news. But that's not the only reason. The resurrection also proves that Jesus shut the mouth of your enemies. He defeated death. He died once for all, for all humans, so we don't have to die if we're in Christ. Jesus was inaugurated in the resurrection, and Satan's phony administration was decimated. Jesus came out of the grave and was enthroned with all authority. Now we're just waiting for the, fu the fulfillment, the continuation of Jesus' resurrection work. Pretty cool. So what, Sam? Why does this matter? Well, it matters to the original audience because Caesar, listen, Caesar does not have the key. 
Guys, can you, you know, we, we think we, we are persecuted. We're not, okay? We're not. These guys were persecuted. They were losing their heads. They were thrown into gladiatorial arenas. John is on a penal colony. The leader at this time, the, the most um, you know, powerful leader within Christianity is a slave. What is the key here? What is the key that we need to see? The key is that Jesus has the key. Caesar doesn't have the key. Rome doesn't have the key. The world doesn't have the key. The enemy doesn't have the key. Jesus has the key to death. This is encouraging. It would have been encouraging to these guys, and it should be encouraging to us. So he says in verse 19, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, or those that are and those that are to take place after this. And for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Angels of the seven churches. Yeah, you get it. You can read it. It's in front of you. Now, how exactly, let's, let's just get into a finer point here, and I'll close here. How exactly did this scene of the resurrected Lord bring clarity to the original audience, and how does it bring clarity to us? I talked in the beginning about perspective. How does this scene of Jesus filling our screen, how does it bring perspective for us? So let me give you three points of clarity. We'll close here. Three points of clarity that come from seeing resurrection reality. Number one. The resurrection proves that you are seen and you are known. The resurrection proves that you are seen and you are known. This vision was a reminder that Christ had not forgotten his church. Where is Jesus in the vision? He's in the midst of what? The church. Guys, the whole point of the candlesticks and the stars, and it's, it's to show tangibly to these guys that Jesus is not distant. He's not off doing something else. He's not busy. He's busy in the midst of his church. He's present. He's here. The Christians of the first century needed to hear that, and we needed to hear that. So you are seen. The fiery eyes that, that, that saw all chose to see the church. Jesus sees it all. He sees the distress. He knows what's going on. And he meets us where we are. Now maybe for some of you guys in here that are not so sure about this Jesus thing, maybe the hardest thing for you to believe is not that Jesus is all-powerful. Maybe the hardest thing for you to believe is that Jesus cares about you at all. Look at this picture. What we're meant to see here is we're meant to see a priest who is present. I know that word priest has really been ruined in a lot of ways in our culture, but just see through that. See through the abuse See through the grossness of that and see that the office of priest was designed by God for someone to mediate between you and God, for someone to meet you where you are, for someone to enter into your struggles and to carry you to the grace of God. That was the function of the priest. And Jesus is the high priest and he is present. He's in this with you. He cares about you. His eyes are set on you and his hand is touching you. Isn't that great? The resurrection is a constant reminder that Jesus didn't take off. No, he eternally moved in by forever connecting himself to humanity. He has moved in. He's moved in by the Spirit of God who is present. His Spirit is here now, available to us. So the resurrection proves we are seen and we are known. Number two, the resurrection proves that you are valued and you are useful. Where do I see that? 
Well, I see that in the stars and in the candlesticks. What's the point of that or the lampstands? The point of those is light. The purpose of the stars, the purpose of the candlesticks, or the, the, you call them candlesticks, lampstands, is witness, light. Jesus sent us forth as beacons of light. The purpose of this picture is that not only that Jesus is ministering to these guys, but that these guys, the church, us, all of us, we are a witness in a dark world. Now, what is Jesus doing in the midst of the candlesticks? Candlesticks. Good grief. What is Jesus doing in the midst of the lampstands? What's he doing there? What's he doing there? He's trimming the wicks. He's tending to the witness of the church. And if you read the book of Revelation, you'll see this. Jesus is concerned for the witness of his church. And he's tending to the witness of his church. My point is simply that, that God didn't just save you for no reason. He saved you for a purpose. That purpose is to be his witnesses. And he's good at what he does. Number three, third reason, the resurrection brings clarity. The resurrection proves you are safe and you are secure. Safe and secure. There's not been many times in the Christian history where, where, where Christians have been more threatened. And the whole purpose of the writing of the book of Revelation was to remind Christians that they were safe and they were secure. If you read the book of Revelation, you're going to see that Jesus conquers. That the lamb who has been slain takes out Babylon, which pictures Rome. All the institutions of human evil will bow and be extinguished by the eternal sovereign Jesus. It's the whole point of the book of Revelation. And the whole point of the book of Revelation was to bring comfort and confidence to the church who was being persecuted because Jesus is high and lifted up over all authority. And we need to see that. We need to hear that. Things are hard in the world. They're going to get harder. I'm not playing prophet. I'm just telling you. It's going to get harder. We need a big view of a risen Christ. We need it. Jesus knew his church needed it in the first century, and he wrote it down for us today. There's a blessing in this book, in the book of Revelation. We read it. We see that Jesus is high and lived, that we need to see him that way. That's where we get perspective, right? Perseverance, I said at the beginning, perseverance comes through perspective. We need to see this picture of Jesus. So why do I highlight these three things? Let me give them to you again. The resurrection proves you are seen and you are known. Number two, the resurrection proves that you are valued and you are useful. And number three, the resurrection proves that you are safe and you are secure. Why do I highlight these three things in the text? Because these are the most basic needs of humanity. These are the most basic areas that we tend to get confused on, that we tend to feel like we don't have. What am, I, am I safe? Am I needed? Am I accepted? Am I relevant? Am I assured? My Assertion to you is that the answer to all of those questions is found in seeing and beholding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He sees you. And his hand was pierced for you, and his hand is reaching out to you. How will you respond? How will you respond? Amen? I'm just going to leave it at there. I'm going to invite the team back up, and let's pray. Why don't you guys stand with me? Jesus, we acknowledge this morning that you are this figure that we've just spent time looking at. We acknowledge all of the implications of that. 
All authority in heaven is yours. Your eyes see it all. They know it all. They see through the lies that we tell, the lies that we tell ourselves. Your eyes of truth know it all. Your words are powerful. And your words have spoken through the gospel. Then that power is transforming us and has the power to save. God, you are wise. You are the beginning. You are the end. You are the alpha. You are the omega. You are the source of glory. Everything that is good comes from you. Jesus, you are also the son of man. You are the judge of all the earth. So this morning, I pray that at Philippi Church in 2023, that we would walk out of here, not just being reminded that you climbed out of the grave, but being reminded that you went to heaven and have taken your seat of authority. Jesus, may we live in that way, that we actually see you in power and respond accordingly. Thank you that you've loved us. Thank you that you saved us. So God, we just want to end our time by singing praise to you, Lord. We want to stand in awe of